You're listening to the Happy as a Mother podcast. Today, I'm excited to welcome Gemma Hartley to the show. Gemma is a freelance journalist, speaker, and author of Fed Up, Emotional Labor, Women, and the Way Forward. I came across Gemma in my work and research for the book that I'm currently writing, and I loved her perspective on the topic of mental and emotional labor. This is something that we often refer to as the invisible load around here, and man alive when I share these posts and we talk about it and we really break down what this invisible load looks like, it resonates with so many of you and we cannot get enough of this validation and feeling seen for this enormous invisible load that we carry. In my conversation with Gemma, we talk about why we carry the mental load, the role that perfectionism can play, why we often cling so tightly to perfectionism in motherhood, tips for where to even begin in letting go of this load, ways to avoid resentment when discussing this with our partner, and the difference between delegating and really creating a sense of ownership so that we can work towards more equal partnership. I love Gemma's perspective in this conversation of the mental load and invisible labor, and I don't want to keep you any longer from these goods, so let's hear my conversation with Gemma. We all envision ourselves as the perfect mom, nurturing, happy, and loving all the time. When reality hits and we find ourselves frustrated, resentful, and full of rage, that can lead us into a full-on shame spiral. The truth is, you don't have to be perfectly peaceful all the time to be a good mom, but we can help you understand and handle your rage and repair after the hard moments. Dr. Ashri Nareem, Psyched Mummy, and I have helped thousands of parents get to the root of their anger. As moms ourselves, we understand how the rage monster sneaks up in frustrating moments. As therapists, we also understand the tools and strategies you can use to prepare and prevent that from happening. That's why we set out to create All the Rage, raising kids with less anger and more connection. A course to give you everything you need to know about how to keep calm as a parent in the most difficult situations. When we say everything, we mean everything, from understanding what makes you more prone to anger, how your thoughts influence your anger, ways to stop the outbursts before they happen, as well as what to do in the most triggering moments and how to prepare when you lose your cool. This course is made to be digestible and simple. We even include a downloadable workbook to help you work your way through it. We're confident that this course will change your life so confident that we want you to buy it risk-free, meaning if you don't love it, you can get your money back. Nobody is perfect, but we want you to be the parent you want to be. Head to happyasamother.co slash rage to learn more. That's happyasamother.co slash rage. Welcome to the Happy as a Mother podcast, where we're dedicated to helping you cope with the load of motherhood. I'm your host and registered psychotherapist, Erica Jossa. We all had expectations going into motherhood, but reality often has a different plan. Let's work together in shattering unrealistic expectations, letting go of shame and guilt, and accepting where we are on our motherhood journey. We'll pack a toolbox for motherhood with expert advice, practical tips, relatable stories, real moments, and honest conversations. 
My goal is to give you the knowledge, tools, and resources you need to parent more freely. However, this podcast should not replace the advice of your healthcare provider. It's time to do motherhood differently, toss out the idea of perfect, and enjoy the journey. Let's dive in. Gemma, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show today. I know that we've gone back and forth and trying to find the right timing when momming and on the tail end of a pandemic and working is really difficult. So I appreciate you taking the time to be here with us today. Yeah, I'm so excited to finally be able to be here. I've followed you for a long time. I really love the work that you do. So this is a treat for me. I am slowly but surely digesting every book in the area of like mental load and invisible labor and came across your book, Fed Up. And it's interesting to see everybody's various perspectives on this topic. I'm really curious, how did this book come about for you? Tell me a little bit about your story. So back in 2017, this book came about from a viral article that I wrote. And so I had written about the Mother's Day experience that sort of opens the book where my husband, I had asked him to get me a cleaning service to come in for Mother's Day. I didn't really want any physical gifts. And I wanted that gift specifically because I think it would give him a little bit of insight into sort of the invisible work that goes into running a home. Like, how do you plan for something to happen with everyone's schedules? How do you do the research and planning? How do you delegate things out? And instead of getting a cleaning service like I asked for, he ended up deciding to clean the bathrooms himself on Mother's Day. (laughs) And Mm. it was, yeah, it, it was a time. So I was sort of left doing all of the regular household stuff that I normally do while he was cleaning the bathrooms (laughs) and, you know, dealing with like which kid wants the blue cup, which kid wants the green cup, picking up everyone's clothes, noticing all of these little things that need to be done rather than relaxing as I had imagined I would, you know, setting up those expectations for Mother's Day that (laughs) always lead to disappointment. Mm. And I... At one point was putting something away. I went into the closet and there's this big Rubbermaid storage bin. I bet you can see it. It's right up there (laughs) in my closet. The infamous bin. Yes, (laughs) it's up there. And so I'm very short. I can't reach up there. And it was down in the middle of our closet. And it's not a very big closet. So it takes up all the space. It had been there for three days. Uh, It has all our gift wrap. And so my husband had gotten it down, gotten out some gift wrap to wrap his mom's present for Mother's Day and had left it there. And I kept seeing it and kept thinking, there is no way he is waiting for me to tell him to put this thing away that he got down. Mm. And instead of taking him away from the job that he was doing and asking him to put it away, I really passive aggressively like dragged a chair through the house and like went to put it up myself And he came in and was like, hey, if you want me to put that away, all you have to do is ask. And that was a real light bulb moment for me where I was like, that's the thing that is causing so much resentment is that I don't want to have to ask. I want Mm -hmm. to have a partner who notices 
what needs to be done and takes action in the same way that I do. And that's sort of what sparked the article and then the whole book is this notion that there is this invisible mental and emotional load that I'm carrying around that is not being shared, even if the physical work of keeping the home running is being shared. I felt like I was in charge of all of the managing, the planning, the delegation, and the overseeing. Mm-hmm. And it's something that we talk about so much here. We have an invisible load series and frame it as mental labor, or cognitive labor, but there's certainly this emotional component as well, like being the emotional coach of the home and being the one to tame the tantrums and all of that as well. And I think that when you have a moment where you see it, like you're describing an aha moment, and I'm also writing a book right now in this same space. And I remember distinctly an aha moment that I had where this invisible labor that I couldn't even see or articulate became very clear and evident to me. And after that, I couldn't unsee it. It was just sort of this cascading effect of like everywhere I went, I saw the task, but I saw all the invisible pieces that went with it. And I think that sometimes that can be a really overwhelming place to be because like now what do we do with this invisible load that we see that we're carrying, right? Yeah, it it was a really frustrating moment because I could see the problem, but I could not yet see any sort of solution. How do I take the thing that is in my head and articulate what is invisible to someone else in the household? It was a really difficult moment to reckon with and start to figure out like, okay, this is the problem. How do we actually solve it? How do we move forward from this place? Mm-hmm. The invisible load is the problem, right? And I think that what I see break out in my comments and I, the feedback that I get from people is that like our partners are the problem or like they're the ones that need to do the work or who needs to do the who should own this responsibility? Should we put this responsibility on moms to unlearn how to do this or should it be partner's responsibility and where does this lie, you know? And it's a tricky situation that I feel like you walked a really good balance of addressing in your book because I feel like I've taken in a lot in this area so far. And some sort of put the onus on, you know, the system or our partner. And while that is true and they're key players in this, you know, situation, I think about myself as a new mom and the role that I also played because some of this is so tethered to our what we think of the identity of a good mom and what we think it means to be a good mom that we actually hold on to some of these things so tightly. Can you talk to me a little bit about that? Because I feel like you walk that line very delicately in your book, which I appreciated. Yeah, I mean, I think what you're talking about here is that like, there is personal responsibility for us, for our partners. And then there is also the cultural component of it as well. I don't think any of those can really be extricated from one another. Mm -hmm. I think what makes you crave perfectionism as a new mom is really informed by the culture that you're growing up in. So I don't think we can say like, oh, culture, you know, has nothing to do with it or our partners have nothing to do with it because they could certainly take that initiative. But you have to come to a point of reckoning with the things that you've deeply accepted as truth 
without questioning it. Yes. And that's a normal thing that happens. I mean, you know, everyone has those things that they have silently accepted about themselves, about their identity, about the world. And I think we need to be really conscious about examining those things and whether or not they're actually true. Mm. Like, does this have to be done exactly this way? You know, is mm-hmm. does this standard that you've set make sense for your life and why? And if you can answer that question in a reasonable way that you don't have to do a lot of mental gymnastics for, that standard stays. Right. I am a really big proponent of like, you know, we create with our partners shared standards of how we want our families to run, of how we want our lives to run. But that doesn't mean that you just get to impose your standards without thinking critically about them, without questioning where your ideas about these standards came from. Because without examining that cultural impact on how you decided to do the things you do, I think you're going to keep running into this problem over and over again, and you're going to end up picking the load back up at some point or another because Mm. things won't be going your way. It is so tricky and interesting, right? Because if we're the ones that took some maternity leave, or I was just reading a statistic that like 25% of moms in the US only take three weeks maternity leave. So I know that this is even in itself a hard topic. But if you're the one that takes leave, which traditionally, you know, moms are more prone to take, I don't know, these these patterns start to become ingrained so early on. And when you are in the role and you're gaining the expertise and you, you know, start to develop this experience. And then as a result, like intuition, a mother's intuition, because you're just so entrenched in the role. And then you have this like awakening or reckoning, as you said, where like, how did I get here holding all of these bags? Like this, I didn't expect that I was going to be running the house and doing all the child care and the default parent and the emotional coach and the chef and the everything and looking to unpack it, then starting to hand things over or say, okay, assume this responsibility. Now this whole grocery food domain is yours. And our partners may be coming in as a novice in that area, not doing it for the past like three years or four years like we have been and really fumbling their way through it at first when it comes so like intuitive and naturally to us then, like grates on the perfectionism of every mother, I'm sure. Yeah, I sometimes describe it as, you know, it being almost a different language that mothers speak or that women speak. It's like if you had grown up in a family and the women in your family speak French, they only speak it to their daughters. And so you grow up, you know, entrenched in this language, you speak it fluently. It's not that your adult partner can't learn a new language. It's just going to be really hard and really bumpy. And it's going to take a lot more effort because we have been in this for a very long time. We are very fluent in emotional labor and Mm -hmm. learning that skill as an adult, because it is a skill, is going to take time. It's going to take a disproportionate amount of effort And I think that's something that we sometimes miss is the effort that it takes when you haven't grown up with these expectations, when you haven't been entrenched in them basically your whole life. Hmm. It takes a lot of work. And I'm not saying that that's a reason that partners should opt out, but it's something that we should be cognizant about. 
that this is a process that is going to take time, that is going to take effort, and that we need to probably give a little bit more grace than we might have been willing to in the past when maybe you've tried to have this conversation, things sort of fell apart, you felt let down, and you picked it all back up. Yeah, I see that happening with clients that I work with where they go through these really detailed lists and divide out tasks like physical tasks and maybe even hand it entirely over the emotional labor that goes with it. But then we give this like thought experiment or this experiment a try and we walk by and the kids are eating fries and nuggets for dinner for maybe the second or third time that week. I don't know. And then it's like, clearly, this isn't the right way. Like, you don't understand it. And I'm going to reassume this role again, right? And in your book, you walk through how you struggled with that urge to, like, pick it back up along the way. Yeah, I think it's still something that I struggle with. It's been, you know, four, five years since I wrote that original article, since my husband and I started having these conversations. And there are still times where I feel tempted to take things back, to start leaning back into that perfectionism because, you know, I still fall back into those old patterns of thinking that perfectionism is a way to save myself, Mm. you know, that I can find this perfect way of doing things that will lift the load off of me, that will make things easier. I know that is a lie and I have written about it and On an intellectual level, I really understand that that's just a black hole for my energy to keep going into. Mm -hmm. But it's very, very appealing. It makes me question the function of perfectionism. Because in therapy, when we are working with clients who, and like, I'm a recovering perfectionist. So this is not me like psychoanalyzing you in any way. I'm right in this with everybody else who's struggling. But when we think about a behavior that we continue to do, even though we know it's not really like what's best for us, it's because it is serving us in some way that it's meeting a need or it's doing something for us. And when I step back a little bit and I look at perfectionism and trying to do things right and do them the best and do them the right way, you know, air quotes, I think about us performing in our role and wanting to feel good enough and wanting to feel validated in our role as mothers to know that we're doing enough to, I don't know, establish a bond with our child or care for them effectively. And I feel like it starts to come back to our worth and confidence in our role. I don't know. Would you make that connection? I definitely think that is one of the connections. I think for me, a lot of it comes down to perfectionism gives me a sense of false control Mm. over things that I really can't control. Mm -hmm. You know, how my children are going to turn out in the world is not entirely up to me. What I can protect them from, what I can provide for them is not necessarily as much under my control as I would like it to be. And so when I go on these quests to find the perfect way to do everything, to make their childhood magical Mm -hmm. in this way that I have been taught to, you know, build up that identity of motherhood. I think I'm grasping for control rather than facing my basic fears 
about whether or not I'm a good mom. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because I do think as clients and stories sort of scroll through my brain that this function can look different. Obviously, for a lot of people, maybe it's living up to a gendered role that we saw displayed in our home. Maybe it's our faith and religion tells us parents look and behave and you know do this in this way. And there's a lot of influences, I think, that play into what it means to be a good mom for us. And that ultimate like uncertainty of knowing how life will unfold and how it will have an impact on your children and trying to do anything and everything in your power you can to set them up for success and happiness and health and well-being is a big piece of it. Because one of the things I hear from moms and I talk about on my my Instagram page all the time is like, we want to be so perfect for our children and we don't want to like raise our voice or have a falling out with them because we don't want to inflict any negative, you know, interaction on them or any harm on them. We want to set them up as best as we can. But then we end up suffocating in this pressure to be perfect in every aspect of our role. And it's just not humanly possible. Yeah, no, it's absolutely not. It makes me think of, you know, Back to the beginning of the pandemic, you know, when that started, when we were in lockdown, immediately I started seeing like color coded charts for your routine for your kids. And I was very much like looking at them and being like, yeah, that'll solve this. That'll get them through this without trauma. Like there's no way to get them through this without trauma. Right. There's not. And that's such a difficult thing to come up against that there are some things we cannot protect our children from and no amount of creating this false sense of control is going to make that work. Mm-hmm. It reminds me of an episode I recently recorded about toxic positivity, right? Like we can't just ignore that the negative things happen and we can't just be so perfect that we shield ourselves from them. Like we live in a human world. We are human and people are flawed. And it's really like how we handle and navigate these situations rather than showing up perfectly in them. In the book, you paired perfectionism with this like gatekeeping behavior that can follow it. Can you help make that connection and unpack it for listeners? Yeah. So I think perfectionism and gatekeeping go hand in hand. When you have to have things done in a way that is, you know, air quotes around perfect, Mm. you have to gatekeep. You cannot allow anyone else in because you, as a perfectionist, are the only one that can control that outcome. Things cannot be perfect without your hand being on everything. And so even if you are delegating out work, you are not letting go of any of the emotional labor. You are still doing the noticing, the planning, the delegating, and then you are overseeing that work if you are not doing it yourself because you will not let anything off your plate. And that level of maternal gatekeeping that we tend towards when we lean into perfectionism is often what drives partners away from making the effort. Mm. Because a lot of the times, you know, I'll hear dad say like, yeah, I, you know, I was making an honest effort and I was trying and things were being like literally taken out of my hands because I was not doing it right. Mm -hmm. Rather than having a conversation together about how things should be, about how we want to co-create a life. It's like being, you know, an employee 
Like the boss tells you what to do. And that's not a healthy setup for a relationship, having that hierarchy. It's not good for us emotionally to be the person that is in charge. We all know that. And then it's not healthy for our partners to feel like they don't have a say in how their life gets to run, Mm -hmm. you know, within the family sphere. If you don't give space for an opinion, for creativity, you know, for them to take an active role, then why should they want to put forth any effort? My husband and I talk about this in our home as like being particular about certain things. Like we each have our area that we're particular about. And I did three maternity leaves back to back in the span of like three and a half, four years, which I'm fortunate to be able to take maternity leave. It also built a cage of invisible labor around me and ingrained those patterns very deeply. And so I looked up some point, you know, in postpartum depression, anxiety after my third and was like, how the hell did I get here? And how do I get myself out? Because this is not how I want to live life and motherhood. And we started to have these conversations and unpack and unlearn these gendered norms and social norms and distribute things differently. And in doing all of that, we realized that each of us have areas that we're more particular in or things that we maybe care about a little bit more in the home. And the idea of priorities, I feel like also can be gendered. So it's not necessarily priorities in the home because obviously I'm socialized to prioritize children and he's socialized to prioritize work. Like So it's not a matter of priorities, but there are certain things that we're each more particular about in the home that like when the other person does it, it just doesn't quite like do it for us. So I think that There's kind of a continuum here where we can be particular. We can have some perfectionism or like certain things done a certain way. For my husband, he likes to load the dishwasher. We're kind of like roles flipped here. Like he really likes the dishwasher a very specific way. He Tetrises it, we say, and he knows when I've been in there and it's a disaster and he doesn't like it to the point that he'd just prefer to do it himself sometimes. And I'll back away and be like, okay, you got this. I'm not going to touch it because it's just going to make it chaotic. And in other ways, when like, let's say one of my children is having a really big meltdown that it's like hijacking the whole evening or routine, I'm a therapist. I've been a play therapist for like seven years. I'll step in because I feel like I have a very particular way that I want to handle that situation. And that's okay. I think that it's when it starts to become like that gatekeeping, as you said, or it starts to become where you can't relinquish things or you can't share in things that it starts to really impact your life. Like if there are certain things that you're particular about, I think you can retain certain things without carrying all of it. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And there are definitely things where I'm like, no, this is my thing. And like, I like it and I'll keep it. But we can't make that decision with absolutely everything. Yes. I think that's the point that it comes down to. Like you really have to soul search about what those things are why you're particular about them. And, you know, maybe you don't have a great reason about why you're particular about them. Like, this is just the way that I like this. It's not a huge burden for me to be the one to do this particular thing. So I will do it. But you have to be really selective about what you choose to do that with. Mm -hmm. Because otherwise you will end up holding absolutely everything. Yeah, I agree. I agree with that. And when thinking about 
unpacking the load? Because maybe there's listeners who are tuning in and they're just like, oh my goodness, I see that I do all the anticipating work and I see that I do all the planning and I see that I am the list maker and inventory keeper. And like, how do I start to unload? And I would say that we don't go for those high stake items that are going to paralyze us. You know, like in therapy, we talk about this as being like a ladder of exposure, right? And like on the lowest rung, we've got things that we could hand off that aren't going to like paralyze our system and cause us to curl up in a ball, (laughs) you know? And then we increase the rungs in intensity of what we can tolerate until we're up to those ones that we have a really tight hold on that we struggle with. Because I think that We want to start somewhere where we can feel some success and feel like we can hand it over without needing to gatekeep it or take it back on. So I say start small. I don't know. What about you? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Go for the low hanging fruit. Like that is Mm -hmm. where that momentum builds from is from those small moments that like give you a sense of accomplishment. Like we have done something together. We have worked something out here. And then you can build on that momentum and keep moving forward. And so I think back to like one of the first things that we like fixed for us was that I was always putting away food on the counter that my husband would leave out. And I don't think that I had ever, I mean, maybe once like many years ago said like, hey, this really bothers me. And like, I just need you to put away like the bread that you made sandwich with and like do it immediately like he would just wait until he was ready to like do the dishes and do all of the other things that came after meal making Mm -hmm. which I get from a logical standpoint but like if I had to walk into the kitchen during that time it would just drive me nuts Mm -hmm. and then that was something that built a little bit of resentment because I'm like I am putting away this thing that you have been careless enough to leave out for me to do. And so it was like the smallest little thing, but it changed his behavior immediately. It happened maybe once or twice after that. And if he saw me putting something away, he's like, I'm sorry, I'm working on it. You know, new habits and all that. But it was a low hanging fruit that we were able to resolve and gave a little sense of like, okay, we can do this and then we can move on to the next thing and the next thing until, you know, we're in a place where we both feel like we've done enough, like (laughs) where we both feel like we have an equal share in how things are running. And that's a very small example. You know, we've tackled much bigger things since then, Mm -hmm. you know, scheduling kids stuff, splitting up like the school and extracurricular activities But I don't think any of that's possible without like going for those little things first. Mm -hmm. And you touch on something there that's really, I think, critical and important because when we interpret our partner's behavior as being intentional towards us, it breeds resentment, right? And an example of this I have in our home is like, I'm ADHD. Like, I am so busy in my brain that I don't even see what's in front of me half the time, especially by the end of the day, if I'm like chewing over things that have happened. So I won't notice things like the soap being almost empty in the soap dispenser. Like I'm I'm poor at noticing some of these things around the house. And my partner is very particular and very aware of these things. And so to him, if it's like a quarter empty, 
it is needs to be refilled. And to me, if I pump soap and it doesn't come out, I'm like, oh, shoot, I got to put more soap in this thing. Totally different. So if he comes along and the soap is empty or something is left out or something is not refilled and he knows that I was the last one in that space to use it, if his interpretation of that is she knows that I'm going to do it and she intentionally left it here for me to do, he's going to be pissed at me all day long because this happens. You know, I'm working on it, but it happens. And I think that we've been able to communicate and give each other grace where it's like, my brain functions differently than yours and your brain functions in this way and how can we work together? And, you know, like it's a conversation versus an assumption that I'm out to slight him or cause more work for him in some way. Yeah, and this is something that I have struggled with a lot myself and I have heard from so many women that this is where things start to boil over Mm. is that they are perceiving the inaction of their partner's as a lack of love and respect. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where resentment comes from. Like, it is that sense that, like, he has left this for me. When really, when you take a moment to consider how ludicrous that is, like, Mm. how likely is it that your partner leaves something there? Like, how often would you purposely leave something and be like, you know what? Someone else will do this for me. Right, like, consciously, we're like... I'm just going to leave this here because I know. Consciously, no one does that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's like the coworker that leaves dishes in the sink. They're not actually leaving them there being like, someone else will do this. They probably just walked away to do something and forgot to come back to get them. Mm -hmm. Is that a habit that needs to be changed? Yes. But it is not like a personal vendetta against the next person that walks into the break room. Right. So... (laughs) It's not to say that that person doesn't have some work to do. Like they need to learn how to keep their dishes out of exactly. the sink. So for sure, there's some responsibility on them there. Yes. But it's also not an intentional slight or like malicious act against, like you said, anybody else in that room. And what I challenge, sometimes I do this to myself or I'll encourage my partner or even clients that I work with is how do we start to develop like giving our partner the benefit of the doubt and like I will just pause if it's a situation for me or whatever. What are three other reasons why this might be sitting here right now that have nothing to do with me or, you know, that they're personally trying to do this to me? Like, what are three other possible reasons why this bread could be sitting on the counter right now other than he wanted to just like create extra work for me today? And then we think, oh, maybe he was like running to a conference call and he was making a grilled cheese or maybe whatever the situation, we're like starting to carve out some other possibilities other than taking it personally. And I think that that's an important step too, because as you said, breeding ground for resentment. Yeah. And I think the thing that is so hard about emotional labor is that like, you know, people will read my book and get really fired up. And a lot of the times they are fired up in their resentment. Mm. And so they are coming to this conversation, guns blazing and they forget to have that unconditional positive regard for their partner, Hmm. which is, you know, just that sense that like, I am always going to assume the best intentions from you Mm -hmm. because you are my partner and I love you and I trust you. So I have this unconditional positive regard for you. 
working from that rather than working from, hey, you've got some shit that you need to fix. Like you have to fix your behavior. You know, your lack of initiative is the problem here. Mm -hmm. And it's one of the problems. But if you're coming at it with that attitude, not only is it not going to be fixed, but like that is probably one of your main problems Mm -hmm. is that like it's too loaded for your partner to feel comfortable entering that arena. I heard somebody say to me last week, we were talking about invisible labor and they were like, you know, often people don't hire and expand for a new role until the situation is so dire that the house is on fire, you know? And I think that by the time we realize we're carrying this invisible labor, we're in such a dire, you know, state of, exhaustion and burnout and like all of the things that it feels like the house is on fire and we don't know how to get out of it and so it comes with a lot of reactivity it comes with a lot of loaded emotion but as you said like if we're going to work as a team Dr. Becky Kennedy always talks about this like seeing the good inside you know ourselves or our kids but our partners as well like you are my partner I am going to give you the benefit of the doubt like I see the good in you I know we're in these trenches together and we try to view things through that lens and work together. Like it's going to take teamwork and partnership to redistribute and figure this out. One of the things that you talk a lot about is like helping and delegating and these words that imply that we still carry the load. And and I think my question here is like, you spoke about having a conversation about the bread and how that bothered you. And I'd like for us to unpack as we are thinking about wrapping up here, what is the difference for people listening What is communication to help our partner understand and what is delegating? And maybe we can give some examples of how that looks different because you communicated this need and then he learned, oh, I'm not going to do that again versus delegating it and being in charge of it still, if that makes sense. Yeah. So if I were to delegate it, I would, first of all, would not give him a moment to rectify the situation like I would see the bread and be like hey you need to come in here and put away the bread Mm -hmm. (laughs) and you know that is the delegating and we do a lot of delegating like hey I noticed this job needs to be done I need you to do this job and you know often you're seen as a good communicator if you can articulate when you would like that job done Mm -hmm. so that your partner has that like clear plan that is in your mind but Really, when we delegate, we are saying that you are helping me fulfill something that is on my plate, that is still my responsibility. Mm -hmm. And so when we say things like, oh, you know, my husband helps me with this, or when your partner says, like, let me help you with that, when it is something that you would like them to take responsibility for, you need to start to be conscious of changing that language because help implies that it is your responsibility and that your partner is going above and beyond rather than just taking up their share of the responsibility in your shared life. Yeah. And I think that like delegating is giving the physical task, as you said, like, can you please put the freaking bread back in the cover? Like, why is it on the counter versus seeking to understand the context and like giving the context? I think that that communication piece that really comes with handing over the load we're bringing them into the context outside of just the bread being on the counter, right? It's like I have this laundry story where 
of this pile of laundry is just growing in my house. I'm looking at it feeling paralyzed about the like five, six, seven loads of laundry I've got to fold. And explaining to my partner who's walking by it, like, you know, it's really frustrating to dig the balled out clothes out of the laundry mountain. I'm like, I look at that and I see that it's actually a season changeover for the kids, all of their cupboards and all of their closets. So to fold that laundry, then to put it away means I have to go through every closet and move this size to here and this size to here and this size to here. And then I need to make sure that it's seasonally appropriate. And then I need to create a list and order and go shop for the things that we don't have. And so bringing him into the context of like, it's not like, oh, I'm just not folding this laundry. It's like when I look at this laundry, this is what it represents to me. And I'm actively avoiding it because it's paralyzing gives a whole different level of insight to our partners that they can come in and even assume responsibility without us having to say, could you take this part off? Like, and he'll say, okay, you know, what parts can we divide up or how can we tackle this together? And without that context, I don't know, he just, he wouldn't have known otherwise. Yeah. I think it's really important because we have all of the reasoning in our minds and we often don't articulate that. And I think that is one of the big overwhelming things that we come up against when having these conversations is that there's a lot there to unpack. And, you know, I often haven't had a great answer for like, how do we start these conversations? And I often say, well, like, it's not one conversation. First of all, it's many, which is true. Yeah. But sometimes I think, you know, like you approach your partner with that unconditional positive regard and tell them like, hey, I am like riled up about this right now. I need to just like vent some things out and doing your best to like vent things out. Like this is how you can love me. You can just listen to me right now. And we don't have to fix anything right this moment, but I want to give you what is going on in my brain Mm -hmm. in this moment about this topic. And I think that's like, a really good place where our partners can meet us before we have to do the effort of trying to actually fix anything. Mm. We can go into that space of like, I would like you to understand me and my experience, because that's a lot of what this is about, is that we want to feel like our experience is seen and understood by our partners. Mm-hmm. And so I think going through, you know, I, I've i had a long time to sit on this and I think you know, going to that place first of like, please listen and understand where I'm coming from. We don't have to fix anything today, but we're going to start having these conversations and I'm going to start sharing my life with you in a different way. Mm -hmm. And it's not to say that I am blaming you or that I am angry with you, but that like things need to change because this is what's happening in my inner life and it's untenable. Mm hmm. And to do that together as a team, and like you said, have the conversations and reevaluate because you might try and problem solve a solution that crumbles and doesn't work. It doesn't mean we we give up on trying. And it, and you share in the book some of the ebbs and flows and things that work and didn't work as you both tried to troubleshoot this. Can we wrap up with like some successes? Like, do you want to like let us in a little bit on where some things are at and some things that you have fully been able to take your hands off of? I'm so curious. You know, I think there are honestly like so many things that I wouldn't be able to like, it's hard for me to point to a specific example now that we're so deep into this. 
which I know is a little bit unsatisfying, but I think the biggest change for me has been the sense that I don't ever feel alone with the mental load anymore. Hmm. That's so big. Yeah. You don't feel isolated and alone in this. Yeah. It's huge. That's a big And one. so honestly, like it makes me emotional to talk about that I do not feel alone anymore mm. in my relationship. And it makes me really sad to think of how many women feel really alone in the load that they're carrying. Mm-hmm. You know, you might know that your partner loves you, but if they don't seek to understand your experience, if you feel like they are living a parallel life where they never actually see you, that's not a great life. That's not a great partnership. Mm-hmm. And so that's been the biggest thing for me. Yeah. I just like get this visual. We talk about the invisible load being like this invisible backpack that we just get granted when we enter motherhood that, you know, we carry these boulders around. And I think that there's a few reasons why it's isolating. I'm going to, you know, take a stab at it and say the majority of mothers, women don't even realize that they're carrying it. They feel it, but they can't name it. And when we can't name something, we can't fix it or like solve it or change it. And as you're talking about not being alone in it, I'm thinking like, okay, like he's picked up this invisible backpack. He's been taking things out of yours and putting it in his so that when you guys are on this hike and this journey together, you can both like not be burnt out and you can both equally pace and and stay on task with each other, you know? And I think what we know about even like pain and having companionship in hard moments and the science around so much of that, it just helps to be in hardships and feel seen and be supported by somebody. It helps get us through. It helps us cope. It is a really good feeling. Yeah. And I want everyone to be able to experience that. Yeah. I could talk to you about this all day long. I really, (laughs) really could. And I appreciate you joining us today. For those who want to learn more from you and read a bit more about your story, where can they get your book, Fed Up Emotional Labor, Women and the Way Forward? Where can they find it? They can find it pretty much anywhere books are sold. You can go to my website, gemmahartley.com, and there will be links to buy the book there. Yeah, I think that's about it. Yeah, and we'll link your website and any other ways to connect with you in the show notes and blog post. And I'm so glad we finally got to sit down together. So thank you so much for taking the time. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. The way Gemma weaves her personal story and examples into her book, the real honest truth about how to unlearn some of these things and begin to unload was what really drew me to her and her story. This feels like a topic that many of us, most of us cannot escape. If you are struggling with the division of labor in your household or the division of childcare work and the load within your home, I encourage you to seek out the support of a therapist. When we've lived with a lifetime of norms and messaging and patterns, and we want to start doing things differently, it is hard to even know where to start. But the mom therapists on our wellness team have got you covered. To book your free consultation, head to happyasamother.co slash wellness. That's happyasamother.co slash wellness.
I'll see you right back here, same time, same place next week, where I'm being joined by Dr. Pierre Azam to discuss whether dads experience anxiety in the postpartum period, what it looks like, and how they can effectively handle it. You do not want to miss this episode. I'll see you right back here next week. I can't even begin to tell you how happy and honored I am that you choose to spend your time here with me each week. If you're looking for the resources or links from today's show, or you need a refresh on anything we've talked about, visit our show notes. You can find the link in the episode description, or you can head directly to happyasamother.co slash podcast. To join the Happy as a Mother VIP list and be the first one to know about new episode drops, insider info, or freebies, head to happyasamother.co slash newsletter. Until next episode, Mama, I want you to know... Keep showing up. You're doing an amazing job.